Well, as we come now to um, chapter three of Song of Songs, um, I want to talk about intimacy because sooner or later in any relationship, there comes a point when intimacy starts to fade and starts to become a problem. And the question then is, is what do you do about that? So think of um, a young couple and they're dating and it all seems to be going well. The texts or the phone calls are backs and forwards. They've had a few dates. And then one person on one side of the relationship stops texting. They just dry up. No phone call. The next date isn't arranged. What does the other person do? Is that their cue to call an end to it? Or do they now try to initiate um, the text and the next date? Or is that being a bit needy? Think of a marriage relationship. Um, someone gets married in the first few years. They're just in full flush of young love. Romance is easy. The relationship seems to flow. Then wonderfully children come along. But as children come along, so the routines get thrown out the window and tiredness kicks in. And the romance seems to take a back seat as sleep seems to take a front seat or the desire for sleep seems to take a front seat. And then, you know, they just get out of the rhythm of intimacy. So how do you reestablish it? Who makes the first move? He feels a bit insecure about it now and doesn't want to articulate it. She feels a bit insecure as well. She doesn't want to take the first movement after all, isn't it his role? How do they reestablish intimacy? Or what about our relationship with God? Maybe you can identify with this. Maybe there's a time in your Christian walk when you look back on it and you can, you can remember it. It was prayer was a delight. Bible reading just seemed to throw up fresh treasures every time you opened God's word. And there was almost like a tangible sense of God's presence with you for a time. But right now, I don't know, it feels less like an oasis and more like a desert. Sometimes you're praying and you're wondering, is God even really there? Am I just talking to the air? And you're struggling in your Bible readings at the moment to find anything that really feeds you on a day-by-day -day basis. What do you do? Is, is God withdrawn his intimacy or have you done something different? How do you reestablish that? You want to get back to it, but how do you do that? Now, the reason I mention this is because so far in Song of Songs, we've had an unequivocally positive relationship between the bride and her bridegroom, the husband and the wife so far. Everything's been positive. It's, it's gone well. They've come together. They've got married. They've had intimacy. Now, it's not a linear narrative we've been saying, but all of the, the vignettes that we've been looking at, the songs, have been positive. But here in chapter 3, we get the first sign of something that's not good. Chapter 3, verse 1. All night long on my bed, I looked for the one my heart loves. I looked for him, but did not find him. A loss of intimacy. She's seeking, but he's not there. Well, as we see how we can get that intimacy back and rekindle the relationship, I want us to see three things from our passage this morning. First of all, the search for intimacy. Secondly, the context for intimacy. And then we're going to look finally, and the second half of the talk will be on the God of intimacy. Let's look, first of all, at the search for intimacy. We, we've said Song of Songs, or rather Song of Songs of Solomon. It's like the best of songs of Solomon, whether that means he authored it or it's about him, we're not quite sure. But um, as we've been going through, we've been saying that this is a collection of beautiful songs, kind of pictures, not necessarily always literal, lots of metaphor, lots of beautiful songs to give us insight into the experience of love and insight into the experience of relationship with the God of love. And so here we find that this bride is on her bed. 
She's got a dream sequence that comes up from chapter 3 here, probably all the way through to chapter 6, verse 3, all night long on my bed. So she's dreaming. And if you flick across the page, then we get in chapter 5, verse 2, a similar thing. I slept, but my heart was awake. You know, sleeping but heart was awake is describing a dream. So we get kind of two dreams in this sequence of these three chapters or so that come up. And it's helpful to compare these two dreams. We won't do too much of it now. But this first dream is, is a loss of intimacy, but she goes out seeking. But in the second dream, there's similarly a loss of intimacy, but this time she holds back. And that impacts because this is a positive you know, um, dream. Ultimately, it's a good experience, and it leads to a rekindling of intimacy, whereas the second dream is much less positive. And um, you know, there's some darker things going on in that. When we come to it, we'll have a look. But the key thing here is that when she's faced with this loss of intimacy, her lover not being there, what does she do? She seeks. Verse 2, I will get up now and go about the city through its streets and squares. I will search for the one my heart loves. So I looked for him but did not find him. She searches around, and then in the kind of dream sequence, you know, with dreams, slightly odd figures come in, she comes across the watchman of the night, and she asks them, have you seen the one my heart loves? Verse 3, they haven't, but she carries on, and then verse 4, scarcely had I passed them when I found the one my heart loves. But finding him isn't enough. She's found him. She searched for him. But now what does she want? I held him. I would not let him go. We'll pick up on the similarities with John 20 and Mary in the Garden of um, Gethsemane holding on to Jesus till I brought him to my mother's house to the room of the one who conceived me. She doesn't just want to find him. She wants to be intimate with him. She wants to have sex with him. This is the bride and the bridegroom, the husband and the wife now come together. She wants a full consummation of intimacy. Now, why is this so important? Well, look, it's important because you know in any relationship the natural defensiveness and vulnerability and fragility of the human heart. When one person withdraws in a relationship, the, the, the normal human inclination is to say, well, I'm not, I'm not going to seek him, right? I'm not going to seek after her. I mean, she withdrew from me. I'm going to wait. I'm going to hold out. Right? That, that's just normal. We, we all do that. It's because we're insecure, far more insecure than we like to admit. It's because we're naturally defensive. If, if he withdrew from me, why would I go after him? Isn't that too needy? But notice, she doesn't do that here. She seeks. She searches. And of course, the problem is, is if you have loss of intimacy in a relationship, if each party says, well, I'm not pursuing the other person. They withdrew from me. I'm going to wait for them to come back to me. What do you have? You have a standoff. And actually, that just perpetuates the problem. And in my experience, many relationships get into this difficulty. Marriage relationships where there's been a loss of intimacy. And when you talk to the couples, you find them both saying, well, he's done this, and she's done this, and he needs to make the move. No, she needs to make the first move, and you have a standoff. But notice what she does. She doesn't wait for him. She goes after him. She pursues him. She longs for him. And that's the way you fix it, because if in any relationship, rather than defensiveness and a standoff, each party says, if there's a loss of intimacy, what can I do to reestablish it? How can I pursue the other? Yeah, maybe she did withdraw from me, but I'm going to go after her anyway. That's not the issue. The issue is I want intimacy, so I'm going to go after her. 
she's going to go after me. And if both start pursuing intimacy at the same time, not waiting for the other to make the first move, guess what? Verse 4, I held him. I would not let him go till I had brought him to my mother's house, to the room of the one who conceived me. Intimacy reestablished. Just worth saying here in verse 4 that there's no hint of premarital sex here. In an unashamed society, that little phrase of till I had brought him to my mother's house, it would be unthinkable in an unashamed society that you would have premarital sex in your mother's house, in your mother's bed. The shame. No, no, this is, this is a husband and wife consummating, coming back together after a period of a loss of intimacy. This is beautiful. This is the way it's intended to be. Ganine Roth, New York Times best-selling author, writes this about intimacy. Intimacy is not something that just happens between two people. It's a way of being alive. At every moment, we're choosing either to reveal ourselves or to protect ourselves, to value ourselves or to diminish ourselves, to tell the truth or to hide, to dive into life or to avoid it. Intimacy is making the choice to be connected to rather than isolated from our deepest truth at that moment. And it's worth saying that this is also the gospel dynamic. You see, when we withdraw from God, what does he do? Does he sit remote in heaven and say, I'm not making the first move. He and she better, they better work their way back up to me. I mean, it's on them, right? God doesn't do that. God makes himself vulnerable. He sends his son, Jesus. He, he pursues us. He searches for us. He is the great lover who goes after us. And so this gospel dynamic in our relationships should be there because we know it from God. So if in your marriage at the moment, you're experiencing a loss of intimacy, be like God. Make yourself vulnerable and pursue the other. If in your relationship with God at the moment, you're feeling like a loss of intimacy, remember he pursued you through Jesus Christ and so pursue him. But there's also a warning here, verse 5, daughters of Jerusalem, that familiar refrain, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. If you're dating here or if you're not married, can I just heed the warning of verse 5? It says, only pursue to the degree that it is reasonable with where you're at in your relationship, particularly when it comes to physical or sexual intimacy. Don't pursue that until you're married. And often, young couples, you know, before they're married, get themselves into trouble when they try to pursue intimacy in an area of their relationship beyond where it's appropriate for the time. I've seen young couples who, in the full flush of a Christian relationship, they decide, we're going to start praying together for five minutes every day. And their relationship's just not ready because they don't have the structures in place. They're trying to progress the spiritual intimacy before they're there. Similarly, people try to pursue maybe relational intimacy too quickly. Just give it time. Don't pursue it until the right time, until it so desires, verse 5. And keep physical and sexual intimacy and the pursuit of it for marriage. Well, that's the search for intimacy. Let's now look at the context for intimacy, verse 6. Now, with the importance of the pursuit of intimacy, this raises the question, how can we create a context in any relationship where intimacy can flourish, where we don't have this standoff? And we see it here in verses 6 and following. Look at verse 6. Who is this coming up from the wilderness like a column of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and incense made from all the spices of the merchant? Look, it is Solomon's carriage escorted by 60 warriors, the noblest of Israel, all of them wearing the sword, all experienced in battle, each with his sword at his side. 
Here the vision shifts from night and the city to day and a desert. And there's an important detail when it says, who is this? In Hebrew, the this is feminine. So as they look and say, who is this? They're seeing a woman. And so a woman is coming, carried on um, a litter or a sedan. You know, it's the kind of royal chair that people would bear royalty on. And so it's the bride. She is coming up out of the desert, born forth by Solomon's mighty and lavish entourage. And I want you to notice, as we look at the context for intimacy, the protection and the provision for this bride. First of all, the protection. Notice that she is described as having around her 60 warriors, verse 7, the noblest of Israel, all of them wearing the sword, all experienced in battle. Now, why is that important? Well, King David had 30 mighty warriors. In other words, he had this crack team of 30 elite SAS commandos. And whenever he needed a battle won, then the 30 warriors would be deployed. But this person here, to protect his bride, has got 60 elite warriors to protect her. In other words, she feels, it's a picture of saying, she feels totally safe, totally secure. Because the king is using all of his royal authority, all of his kingly might to protect her. There is not a more secure and protected bride in all of the country. And not in protection, but then also provision. Look at his lavish provision for her. The carriage is made of the finest wood, verse 9. Wood from Lebanon, the cedars of Lebanon. Its posts, verse 10, are made of silver, its base of gold. Its seats upholstered with purple. Purple in the ancient world was the most expensive dye to get. There was only one type of sea snail. I looked it up this week. I didn't just know this. Um, there was one type of sea snail that you had to kind of crush up, and that would give you the purple dye. And so it was literally worth its weight in gold, which is why even to this day the color of royalty is purple. And so here is this bride, and she's been carried on a sedan chair with the royal entourage, Gold and finest wood and silver and purple and no expense spared in the provision for her. And friends, this is the context of intimacy. Protection. Provision. Now look, let me just be really clear what we are talking about here and what we're not talking about here. We're not talking about some kind of patriarchal chivalry you know, whereby men condescendingly say, oh, the fairer sex or the weaker sex, and we have to protect them because they can't protect themselves. It's not that. No, this is about other person-centered love. Because notice how here Solomon is using all of his power to protect her. He's using all of his provision and his royal wealth, not for himself, but for the bride. This is other person-centered love. This is saying, I'm not going to use my might to get mine, to protect me, to make me feel secure. I'm going to make myself vulnerable. I'm going to protect the other. You know, our culture doesn't get this because when it comes to romantic relationship, romantic relationships are put out there as being the great culmination of self-fulfillment. It's about you, right? You get you. You find the person who satisfies you and if she also finds satisfaction in you, then you've got a relationship. But that's ultimately the opposite way around. That's about you. That's saying that men, you know, if the bottom line is you have broader shoulders and bigger biceps than a woman, then you can use that power in a pre-industrial society to kind of get yours, you know, to find your self-fulfillment. 
If you can be more productive in a pre-industrial society because you're slightly stronger, well, then you can make more money, and that's good for you, right? I mean, we don't say it out loud because it sounds ugly, but that's the bottom line. But that's not what this is saying. This is saying if you want intimacy, you, you seek to protect the other. You seek to provide for the other. Not find the person that makes you happy. Search after your self-fulfillment. No, seek after the good of the other. And then find the curious reality that the more you pursue her good, the happier you become. The more you pursue his good, the more you find fulfillment is there. This is putting the other person at the center. This is the context for intimacy. Use everything you have for the other. And as you do that, guess what? It becomes a joy for the other person to open up to you. Vulnerability, intimacy, relationship coming together. This is God's pattern for our relationships. Isn't it beautiful? But now I really want to spend the rest of our time on showing how all of this points us to the incredible intimacy that's available in our relationship with Jesus Christ. So let's now look, finally, at a God of intimacy. Let's read back over these verses from verse 6 and just notice a few things. Verse 6. Who is this bride coming up from the wilderness like a column of smoke? Pause for a moment. Where in Scripture do you remember a bride being brought up out of a desert led by a column of smoke? It's the Exodus, isn't it? The Lord led his bride out of Egypt as a column of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. And look at now the imagery that picks up on sacred tabernacle language. The tabernacle was the, the forerunner to the temple. It was what they had before they got established in the land. And look what goes on, verse 6. Per, the bride is perfumed with myrrh and incense made from all of the spices of the merchant. Now, you don't need to know this off the top of your head, but if you go back to Exodus and look at what the scent of the tabernacle is, there's a very specific perfume which they're ordered to make in the tabernacle. And the majority ingredient of that perfume, sprinkled all over the tabernacle, is myrrh. And what must be burned in the tabernacle day and night? Incense. So hang on, this bride is being born out of the desert, led by God, by a pillar of smoke. And she's in a place where the very scent of it is evocative to the tabernacle, the myrrh and the incense. But there's more. Look at the description of this sedan chair that she's carried on. It's made from the wood of Lebanon, the finest wood, just like the tabernacle was. Its base is gold, just like the inside of the tabernacle was gold. Its seat was upholstered with purple, just as the, the curtains to the tabernacle were blue and purple and red. In other words, the details of this sedan chair are deliberately there to evoke the tabernacle. Because ultimately, whilst the primary reference of this text might be to human relationship, the ultimate reference in this text is to a divine relationship. This is God bringing his bride out of Egypt, celebrating like a bridegroom as he sees his bride walk down the aisle, saying, I've prepared everything for you. And the place of intimacy is the tabernacle where God's dwelling symbolically with his people right in the midst of them. You know how um, smells and sights and sounds can sometimes just transport you away to a memory. A few years ago, I was um, in a, a department store, so it was before lockdown, and um, Rebecca and I had played at our wedding for our first um, dance, Let There Be Love. 
And so I'm in some mundane surroundings. I don't know, I was buying jeans or something like that. And suddenly, Let There Be Love comes on. The tannoy just plays over. It wasn't a particularly, you know, kind of uh, clear recording. But just in that moment, I was, I was there 11, 12 years ago at our wedding. I could see Rebecca and the joy, and I could... I was there, I, I could remember. It was like I was right there, the first dance, the joy of it. Have you had that experience? Maybe someone walks past you and perfume, and it's suddenly you're thinking that, and you, you remember, I don't know, maybe some heady memory from when you were 14 years old and your first love, whoever he or she was. You know, sights and sounds, they're evocative, they stir us. Well, when the Lord talks here of the sight and the sound of his bride, he's saying, I remember it. Oh, it's like it was yesterday when I, I called my bride, my people out of Egypt. The sight of her, the beauty of her, the smell, the aroma. Oh, I can remember it. It was like it was yesterday. That is how passionate he is about his people. That is how much he loves you. And if you wonder that, listen to these words from the prophets from Ezekiel 16 where he, he does exactly that. He reminisces about what it was like when he saved his bride from Egypt. Ezekiel 16, verse 8 and following. Later I passed by. When I looked at you, I saw you were old enough for love. I, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your body. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. I clothed you with an embroidered dress. I, I put sandals of fine leather on you. I, I dressed you in fine linen. I covered you with costly garments. I adorned you with jewelry. You became very beautiful. You rose to be a queen. Your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty. Because of the splendor I had given you, made your beauty perfect, declares the sovereign Lord. Do you hear the tenderness? Do you hear the delight? Do you hear the reminiscing? How do you feel about God thinking of you like this? He has the same delight over you that a husband does when he looks back on his wedding day and remembers his bride walking down the aisle. He's like he's just there. He delights and he enjoys it. This is describing God's love for his people. He, the bridegroom, his people, us, you, me, if you trust in Christ, his bride. And I want you to notice, therefore, that the protection and the provision we saw earlier on is the protection and the provision that God gives to his people. First of all, the protection. I mean, those 60 warriors, that's a protection of he will give to you individually and ultimately he'll give to his church. You know when Jesus says, even the gates of hell will not prevail against my church? That's saying he'll use all of his divine sovereign power to protect his church. No one will be able to harm his church. He will keep you. You might not always feel that secure, but he will not hold anything back. We get a little phrase here where it talks about the terrors of the night, that he's going to protect them even from the terrors of the night, verse 8. The only other place in Scripture where that, where that phrase comes up is Psalm 91, verse 5. Do read it later. But Psalm 91, verse 5, you will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand but it will not come near you. Why? Because the Lord guarantees it. You might say, well, how can you be sure of the Lord's protection? I mean, after all, we've had a rough period through COVID. Because the Lord loves you. Because the Lord will give anything for you. 
In October 2017, Jack and Laurie Beaton were in Las Vegas. They were there to celebrate their 23rd wedding anniversary. They'd flown down to Las Vegas, and they were there to enjoy a weekend together after 23 years of marriage. As they were celebrating and enjoying the concert they were at, tragically, an hour into the concert, a man called Stephen Paddock opened fire with an automatic weapon on the crowd. To this day, it remains the worst atrocity and the largest loss of life um, because of gunfire on American soil. When the gun, um, when the uh, shooting started, then immediately Jack jumped on top of Laurie as she lay on the ground and hid on and um, wrapped himself around her on top of her and whispered in her ears, I love you. And then she felt the force of the bullets hitting his body. She survived unhurt. He was tragically killed. I mean, that's the self-sacrificial love of a husband, just a human husband for his wife. Can I ask you, do you think God loves you any less? I mean, it's not abstract. Jesus died on the cross for you. He gave himself for you. He took the bullets of God's judgment at your sin for you. So don't doubt his protection for you. He'll do anything for you. And so that helps you to open up your heart and say, if he made himself vulnerable for me, if he died for me, so I can enjoy and pursue intimacy with him because he's safe. He has all of this royal power, but it's all for me. And not only the protection, but also the wonderful provision. There's a wonderful sermon that I came across whilst I was preparing this week on this passage from Charles Spurgeon, the so-called Prince of Preachers. The sermon's called The Royal Pair in Their Glorious Chariot. And he takes the different aspects of the royal entourage here and he ascribes them to God's provision for the church. And then he says this, then to make this all soft and pleasant to recline upon, here is pavement of needlework for the bride, soft cushions of love on which to rest. There's a double meaning here, for both the bride and the bridegroom find rest in love. Our Lord finds rest in the love of his people. Here will I dwell forever. They do, as it were, make these carpets of needlework in their love and affection for him and in their trust and confidence in him. And here he rests with them. On the other hand, our beloved spent his life to work for us our bed of rest so that we rest in Christ's love. Take your rest then now to the full. You are married to Christ you are one with him, betrothed to him in faithfulness, embraced in the arms of his affection. What's he saying? Well, look, when I conduct weddings, when Mark conducts weddings, the bride and the bridegroom turn to each other and they say, all that I am, I give to you. It's saying that God has said that to you in Christ. He's given everything he has for you. He's vowed it to you. And therefore, this is the God of intimacy. So enjoy him. So enjoy a relationship with him. So as I close, how should we respond? Seek intimacy with God. If he's done all of this for you, if he's protected you this way, provided for you this way, seek intimacy with God. Just as the bride seeks after her beloved, so seek after God. That's why we had that reading from John where we have Mary in the garden going to the tomb early in the morning. Because she is the great seeker. The disciples, the male, the men, they're not there. But she's got up really early in the morning and she's gone to seek. Why? Where is my Lord? I miss him. I want him. I love him. And when she finds him, what does she do? Just like the bride here, she clings to him. She won't let him go. I've got him. I won't let him go. 
It's a heartfelt longing to be with Jesus. Can I ask you, do you have a heartfelt longing to enjoy Jesus? So often in our Christian life, we can be focused on what I know, the doctrinal truths, what I do, living the Christian life. But the greatest commandment is not know or do. What is the greatest commandment? Love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. God wants more than your brain. He wants more than your hands and feet. You know what he wants? The hardest thing to give. He wants your heart. He wants you to love him, to pursue him, to enjoy him. You don't need to feel defensive if you don't know what that means or if that makes you feel awkward. We're here to help you. But that's what he wants. So be like Mary. Be like the bride here. Seek after him. Heartfelt longing for him. And seek diligently. Mary got up early in the morning. She prepared things. She got the spices ready. Then she went out to the tomb. So be diligent in your search. Don't just give up if it doesn't happen the first time. Don't just say, I'm going to pray for a week to have this type of intimacy, and then after a week, ah, oh, it hasn't worked, I'm going to give up. Seek diligently. God will give it to you. Keep pursuing Him. He's done everything for it. Talk to Mark and I or to your inspired group leaders about how you can foster that intimacy in the relationship with God. Don't be satisfied with anything less because He wants nothing more, nothing less than your heart. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank You that You love us Oh, how you love us. We've said that in this passage today. Thank you for your lavish protection for us, your bride. Thank you for your extravagant provision for us, your bride. May these words not be abstract to us. May they be concrete. May they really speak to us of all that you've done for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And might we respond as the bride here, as Mary in the garden, by seeking you with our whole hearts and seeking you diligently. And we ask it for your namesake. Amen.